Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. All right, we're going to get into God's Word today. I would like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 21, and we will look at verse 28 in a few moments. We're continuing a new series we started last week called Living on Purpose. Living on Purpose. We're going to look at some of the parables of uh, Jesus over the next several weeks. And from these stories, we're going to gain a deeper uh, understanding of our purpose in life through the things that Jesus taught us. And I want, to, I want us all, uh, and uh, again, even if you're a guest visiting this weekend, but the goal is that ultimately we're all living, what I say, on purpose, have a purpose in our lives, that there is purpose driving us, and we understand that that purpose really comes from the living God who puts that purpose upon us. And so uh, I did take time last week to talk about the background picture here. And you may wonder, well, what's with that, that, that brass-looking thing? That's a sextant, which was used by ancient mariners, people that would sail. And the only way that they could navigate, uh, especially at night, would be to look at stars and figure out what angles they were and where they were by the, where the stars were and those sorts of things. And it was quite a science, but it helped them find their, per, their ultimate destiny, if you will. It helped them find their destination. And I, it's just a journey that we're all on together as we're going forward to find the purpose that God has for us, that He has a great destiny. And for some of us, you say, well, I can't see it right now. Well, just keep going because you understand that there is always a horizon, and sometimes it's just over the horizon. We just got a little further to go. But I also wanted to comment on the, the reason I chose that starry background there was, you know, that, that the, the, the destiny and the purposes of God for us are limitless. You just, you just can't even put a limit. He wants to do more than we could ask or imagine, even abundantly more, the Bible says. So that's so good. And uh, by the way, uh, that starry picture there, I have to give uh, photo credit to my son Abraham. He took that photo a couple weeks ago from Wenatchee. In fact, uh, well, you can't quite see it, but if I showed you the whole picture, you could see the lights of Wenatchee in the background. Uh, isn't that an amazing picture? I'm just blown away. It's so good. Well, anyway... So last week, uh, we talked about two very short parables that Jesus taught. It was only actually three verses. And they're, they're short, but they're interconnected parables. One was about a man who found a treasure in a field. He buried it back up, went and sold all that he had to give up everything to get that treasure. And then uh, the second parable was, was so much like it. A man who was a merchant was looking for pearls. He found one that was of incredible value, unsurpassed value in this pearl. And he said, hey, I got to have that pearl. So he sold everything he had to go for the pearl. And we talked about how traditionally those two very short parables are understood as us being the man that finds uh, in the field and the, uh, the person that goes to the, uh, to the marketplace and finds Jesus, who is of such great value to us that we willingly lay down, we're willing to give up everything to follow him. And that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? I mean, just, and that's true. And that's the way I'd looked at it my whole life. But last week, I challenged us to think about that parable differently. We kind of turned it upside down and concluded truly that the man in the parable is Jesus. He's the one that finds the treasure, you and me, in the field covered by the dirt and crud of life, but he, he gives 
up everything. He gives up heaven and leaves heaven and comes, even gives up his life to get the treasure, which is you and me. And the same being said of the pearl. We talked about that, that there's this desire on Jesus' part to find us. And he, in fact, it just agrees with Scripture so much. He, he didn't come, he didn't come uh, to, to uh, he came to seek and save that which was lost. We were lost. We were hidden. We were among the others. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. And so what he does is he, 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 everything he did in purchasing us has, is because he found such great value in us. Now, don't let that freak you out, you know, like, oh, I'm not really worth anything. Well, you're disagreeing with God if you say that. He finds great value in you, and that's why he gave his life. Even when we were wrapped in dirt, when we were, you know, not anything special, but God saw something greater in us that he went after. And so this, this in, this, uh, we have great value that is in, an intrinsic to our value. Here's what you need to hear is our purpose, right? These things overlay one another because, because what is the value? What is the purpose of the treasure? What's the purpose of the pearl? That there's value, but for a reason. For the person that, and so we really wanted to look in. And so if you missed that message last week, uh, listen online. But I felt like it was important to kind of rehearse that for just a moment. So today we're going to look at another short parable about two sons and their response to being asked to work for their father, looking at Matthew 21, 28. Here we go. This is from the NIV. Uh, it starts out, Jesus is speaking. He says, what do you think? The NLT says it this way. What do you think about this? So, so already... Let me ask you that question as we start to go through this. Think about it. What do you think? Here's the, here's the parable. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now remember Jesus' question, what do you think about that? What do you think about what Jesus just said? And I believe that there's a part of this parable that shows us that there is always a chance for a fresh start. God is the God of the fresh start. And I tell you what, I need one every single day of my life. I don't know about you. I love the passage. I live by this passage. The, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. Thank you, God, for new mercies every day. Aren't you glad? Let's pray. God, thank you for fresh mercy every day. Thank you that while I sleep, you're just storing up a whole new fresh set of mercies for me so that every day I have the opportunity, God, to have a fresh start. And I thank you that that's true of everyone, that you have that for every single person. And so, God, as we talk about this, this concept today of a fresh start, I pray that you will just speak to our hearts, speak to our lives, and, and help us to grasp the truths of what you want us to to see here. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for the things that you will speak that, that I didn't even conceive of, but Lord, you speak them to people, and, uh, and God bless us in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen? 
So uh, if you've been here a lot before, you know that oftentimes I'll finish praying and then I usually launch into a story at this point of some sort, something, and uh, typically, I don't know why, it's just something I like to do, I've always felt led to do it, and typically I try to tell uh, something humorous. I, I find humor in a lot of things in life and I don't, I'm not trying to make light of the Word of God, but I often find, especially in the mistakes that I made and the different things I do, that uh, there's always lessons to be learned. Anybody with me on that? And so, uh, so a lot of times I try... And the reason I'm even bothering to, to say what I'm saying right now is I just want to warn you, today is not the day where I'm going to talk about something funny. So don't be sitting there, when's the punchline coming? Because this is a, I'm going to tell you a story, but it's a serious story. And, uh, and uh, so I want you to, to get set for that. I want to tell you a story about a woman who was born in the mid-1930s. She was born to elderly parents uh, late in their, their age. And uh, she had six older brothers and sisters. She grew up in a and I guess what you'd call a fairly moral home, um, but they were not believers in Christ and not churchgoers by any stretch. And, and so they, they lived the, the, you know, the, I guess what we would think of as the early uh, 1900 American life, okay? But, but, devo- but in this case, devoid of, of church and that sort of thing in their lives. And so uh, when she was 12 years old, however, her mother died which was devastating for her. Just, she just uh, idolized her mom. And then, uh, and then uh, some would say out of a broken heart, her, a year later, her father ended up dying. So here's this young girl now, 13 years old, no mom or dad. She has these uh, older sisters who were kind of uh, tasked with the responsibility now of raising her. But, uh, but to be honest, they were kind of eccentric and kind of odd and, and a bit harsh to her at times. And so you can just imagine as a 13-year-old girl now, mom and dad are gone, those people, you know, and then these older, much older brothers and sisters, and uh, it's, it's like she felt very unloved in that situation. She just felt like she didn't have the love that she really needed in life. And so, so by the time she was 20, she started, and, uh, you know, um, dating and, and going out with guys, and she, she ended up going out with this one guy, and she found herself pregnant at the age of 20. And, and in those days, now, uh, it was still uh, socially, I guess you'd say, that it was looked down upon to be an unwed mom in those days, and, and there was an urging that usually took place by the parents that there should be a wedding to make it right. You know, they said things like, give the baby a name. I mean, I, I'm glad that a lot of that, uh, we're not making a case for, uh, you know, not being married when you have children, but we know it happens. I'm glad the stigma of that has been erased and we can just openly embrace and love people without, you know, putting undue kinds of things on them. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so that's great. But I'm just saying in those days, that just, you know, you almost never did that. You just made it right is what they called it. And so, um, so she, she ends up marrying this guy that had gotten her pregnant, but, but the, uh, and, and they had a girl together, but the marriage was not a good one. It really wasn't. It was, a, it was tough. And, and uh, after a couple of years, she ended up divorcing him and started looking for love uh, in other places and frankly, in the, all the wrong places. And she was 23 years old. She met a man that she almost, it was, it was kind of like a love at first sight story. She saw him, she began to talk to him, and she just immediately just fell head over heels for this guy. Uh, the problem is she falls in love with a guy who's married. And so she begins to have this affair with this married guy. She had another child, a son, and then, then uh, she got, and during this time, she got very sick. She was unable to work hardly at all. There was really no support 
from this man in her life. He was just, you know, you know, some might say he was just using her. But anyway, so she begins, she gets so sick and unable to afford proper care for the children. And so she makes the hardest decision of her life and puts her two children up for adoption and uh, broke her heart, just absolutely broke her heart. But still not having a compass in her life from, that would help her, she begins to, um, she begins to now uh, continue this affair with this, this married man and ends up uh, getting pregnant again and then later again. And so to truth be told with all of these children, if abortion had been readily available in those days, none of these children probably would have been born. Because she, again, had no compass that said that that isn't something you should do and had no idea. And if it had been readily available. And I just try, try to think about how many lives that there are out there that are, are not making it because people are choosing convenience because of things that they've done. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be harsh to people who have either had abortions or, or been involved in that decision. I'm just saying we really truly believe that God says that's life. And that we, you know, even if it was a mistake, even if it was, uh, we just believe that there's life there, that we don't want to extinguish that life. Well, so this, this relationship with this man continued for over 10 years and, and uh, was very off and on. And he kept promising her that he was going to leave his wife and, and uh, come marry her, but it never happened. And, and, and finally, she uh, decided that she needed to stop seeing him and it just wasn't working. Soon after that, she met an, another man at a bar, uh, and uh, she began a relationship with him. Turns out he was a married man as well. So now, uh, and it's, now we're up into the 1960s. Um, they started doing drugs together. Uh, eventually, he left his wife and moved in with her. And they moved from the city to the suburbs. They, there was more drinking, more partying, more drugs. Eventually, uh, he began to physically abuse her as well. Even so, they went ahead and got married. Even in the middle of all that mess, this thing. And a lot of times people think, oh, if we just get married or if we just have a child together or something, they're always thinking what will, what will solve the problems. And, you know, if you've got problems, those things don't solve them. But Jesus can. Amen. So, so her, she got married, but her life got worse and worse and worse. And after four years of marriage to this guy out of fear for her own safety and the safety of her two boys that she had uh, with the other man, uh, she finally left this guy. She packed her two kids into a small economy car, left everything behind that she couldn't fit into this little car, and drove 3,000 miles to move in with one of her sisters who invited her to come live with her. So this began an opportunity for a fresh start for her and her boys but I don't think she knew at that time the magnitude of the decision that she was making. Now, some of you who have been around here have heard bits and pieces of my story. You may recognize that I've been talking about my own mother. And I don't tell these things about her to denigrate her in any way. She's with the Lord now, and I think she would have even given me permission to tell her story because, because what I look at is the courage that if you knew her, and I knew her growing up, and, uh, and you thought, here's somebody who will pack up everything into a little economy car, drive 3,000 miles across the country, and, and take her two boys with her with no promise of anything on the other end. You'd have said, there's no way in the world Frances would do that. There's no way she would do that. But she did. She did. It was amazing. She packed us up, got us out of there, got us away from that. And, uh, and I don't know, I don't, if you... <laughs> I don't know where the courage or the, the impetus came from. I can only give credit to God and prayer of other people. 
But, but somehow or another, she had the courage to leave all that behind. And I never think, thought she would do anything so bold or so decisive. She was not that kind of person if you knew her. Well, about six weeks after moving from Massachusetts to Southern Oregon, all three of us gave our hearts to Jesus on the same night. It was amazing. It was like, it was so revelatory. It was so different. I mean, it took us a while to kind of warm up to the idea, but once we realized that we were sinners and we needed a Savior, all three of us gave our lives to Jesus on the same night, kneeling down at the same couch. It was amazing. And the repercussions of that decision that she made back then for a fresh start have continued and continued and continued. They've been monumental in many ways. And it's amazing to me. And so... We go from her story to your story, and I ask you today, what, what, is, what about you? Is there an area of your life that, that you feel even today, you say, man, I need a fresh start in this area of my life. I need something new. And so I want to look at this idea of this story a little bit deeper and then kind of bring us to a conclusion here. So again, here's the situation with our text. The man has two sons. They're sitting down to breakfast of, of mutton and eggs, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I can't say it, McMutton sandwiches, (laughs) something like that. Anyway, and they sit down and, uh, you know, as dads would do, just kind of, hey, turns to their first son, will you go work in the vineyard today? And immediately the guy is like, no, I'm not going to do that, and just storms off and goes about his own business. But, you know, as the story says, thinking better of it, he, he changes his mind, says, I should go ahead and do that. And so he goes ahead and, and uh, dis- decides to have this change of heart and works in the vineyard for his father. Now, not knowing that the older one was going to do that, the father turns to the second one and says, will you go work in my vineyard today? And the guy is so amazing. He's, he's so compliant. He's agreeable, even really respectful. If you look at the text again, he goes, oh, I will, sir. I will. And he says, sir, you know. And he says, but... But he's saying stuff with his mouth, but in his heart, he knows, I have no intention of going out there to that vineyard today. (laughs) I have no intention, and that's exactly what he does. He walks out the door, appearing to be compliant, appearing to be respectful, but is disrespecting his father as he goes out and does his own stuff. And so before we answer Jesus' question about, uh, about who did what the father wanted, which is rather obvious, I want us to slow down for a moment and think about this from the father's perspective. Son number one... Let's look at him. He has a bad attitude. Anybody know somebody with a bad attitude? <laughs> he has a bad attitude, but his actions are pleasing. Okay? Son number two seems agreeable, but his actions are disappointing. Either way, his kids have both hurt him. Do you see that? Right? Do you, can you see this from his perspective as a parent? You go, oh my goodness, the first one is... You know, maybe the hurt is up front. You go, wow, I did not expect that answer from my kid. If you're a parent, they don't have to be very old before you get answers like that. You go, wow, I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that. And so, so, but but then the, obviously the actions of the first son are good, but his rebellious attitude is still a problem. Don't you agree? Okay. The second son's attitude is good, but his actions are rebellious. At the end of the day, he, he has not done the father's will, but the first son has. And if I'm the dad, I'm thinking, why can't my boys have a good attitude and go do what I ask them to do? Bingo, that's what I'm looking for. That sounds great. Is, I mean, is that too much to ask as a parent that, that I could actually tell them to do something and they would do it? That's amazing. 
And, uh, and, and honestly, sometimes kids can just be a handful. I, it's the truth. I mean, I, Ron and I raised three boys, and, and uh, I heard this story about three boys that were from different families, but they were all bragging about how tough they were. And the first one said, well, I'm so tough. He says, I can wear out a pair of shoes in a week. The second one said, well, I'm so tough, I can wear out a pair of jeans in a day. And the third one said, well, that's nothing. He says, I'm so tough, I can wear out my grandparents in an hour. I had that, yeah. Been there. <laughs> but, but if you're a parent, you're going to find bits and pieces, I think, of your children uh, at different times, the, the conundrum that this father faces in your children, right? Like if you've got more than one child, probably you're going to see this. And sometimes it alternates between the children and what particular mood they're in that day. But, you know, but so, so sometimes a child will be son number one, and sometimes they'll be child number two. And then, if you have, again, if you have more than one, the, the actions of the, the second may be dictated by the actions of the first. And it's like it becomes very kind of complicated and messy. In our family, our youngest is Abraham, the guy who took the picture. And uh, he was five years behind Alex and seven behind Andrew. So when Abraham was about two or three, the other two were at a place in life, and I've talked about this before. There was, I guarantee you, there was no uh, physical abuse in our home, but we did what the Bible said, and we used the rod uh, as, as needed upon their, the, the soft portions of their anatomy that God prepared ahead of time that we might use to bless our children with discipline. Amen. Yeah, there should be a lot of amens, because this is what Seriously, discipline, is, it's so important. Do not give in to the world's way of doing things. If you're doing uh, discipline out of anger and you're freaking out and you're just, that's beating your child, that's wrong, that's sin, stop that. But if you're doing it because you care about their future, I mean, some people say, well, I just, it's just too much. You're getting into all this stuff and, I'm like, and I, just, I just don't mess with them. But you do too mess with them. Like if your child, your little one, I don't even care the age, if they start to reach out for something that's dangerous like a hot oven or stove in your kitchen or something like that, what are you going to do? Oh, sweetie, you know, and you try to distract them. Hey, that's the right first step, but you got to keep going. If they will not relent and they keep reaching for something that's dangerous, and you've got to stop that at some point. And you can't spend your whole day just moving them to a new place and having them come back. The truth is you could do that. You could cage off your kitchen, but you never really taught your child what no meant and if you don't teach your child what no means then someday it's going to be much more important to understand when they get old enough to walk and they're starting to walk out in front of a car they don't see and you say no are they listening so don't tell me that you can't discipline your children properly not to do certain things you just need to be firm you need to be consistent that's a little diversion it wasn't in my notes but uh I just felt like I should say it. So, so anyway, back to my story. My kids, seven, five, they're at that age where pff, they're just like, you know, you'd come in and there'd be bite marks on one of them. And there's like scratches and like, and they're screaming. Both of them are screaming like, what happened? Well, he did this and he did this. So you get to the bottom of it and you would discipline. And Abraham's two and he's watching this. Right? He's watching what's going on. And the kid is no dummy. So at two years old, he kind of makes it a decision in his young mind. He says, I want no part of that. And that's the truth. The kid was so compliant. He was so kind. He was so nice. He would just, uh, he would do anything we asked him to do. He was like, he was the best part of son number one and son number two. He was so good. 
And I've often said this, I've often said that I'm so glad I didn't have Abraham first with that kind of a, uh, of a heart because the problem was when the others came along, I would have thought they were demon-possessed. <laughs> Just being real. Because like I would have thought, I would have gauged everything by my first son and thought, this, this raising kids is easy, man, this is no problem. <laughs> Seriously, you even threatened to swat the little guy, and he would just say, oh, he would just decide, and I want nothing to do with that. So, so again, I want to make it clear, this is not even remotely abuse. And if you ask all three of my boys, well, not Abraham, because he never experienced it hardly, but, but if you ask my two older boys about their discipline that they received as children, did they know it was good uh, for them? And they would say, absolutely, they wouldn't have it any other way, and that's how they're raising their kids. And, and I know it was for their good and made better human beings out of them. So, so it's good. And, uh, but anyway, uh, but the truth is, and I, all of that was kind of a distraction and a little bit of a tangent, forgive me, but it just kind of comes up in the story. But the truth is that this parable really isn't about parenting. It's actually about two different kinds of people. And specifically, if you read the context in the last few verses that we read today, you see that Jesus is starting to make a distinction between the Pharisees, the people who are the law people of the day, and the rank-and-file sinners like you and me, if I may say it so you understand what I'm saying, right? That, that we're no longer sinners. We're saved by grace, thank God. But, but you know, we were sinners, and we get that, and we understand it. And so, so it's, the, it's the sinners... It's the, the rank-and-file people of the day who initially uh, resist salvation when it's coming to them, and they resist it, but then after seeing what it is, they think better of it, and they think, no, I, I, I'm going to make a change in my life, and I'm going to go ahead and do what I've been asked to do here. Whereas the Pharisees on the other side, oh, they're so respectful. They're, they're saying all the right things. They're doing what needs to be done here and there. But the truth is, when it comes down to actually doing what they're supposed to do, the, the real re- require, or the real things that the law was after, they aren't doing any of it. They're fa- they're, it's all words for them, but they're faking everybody out with it. They're not really doing what God wants them to do at all. And looking back to last week's message, we talked about the fact that Jesus was the one who's seeking the lost and he's saving them. And and God is definitely in the business of welcoming people who initially rejected him into his vineyard, right? Come on. Us who rejected him are being invited to his vineyard. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. What was true of you and me before does not have to define us who we are now. We used to be that, but we're not that anymore. We are defined by a new definition. And the way we behaved in the past does not have to be indicative of our future reality. There's a different reality that God really wants for us to have. Titus on the screen, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 4, and then verse 8. I kind of skipped a bit in between, but I got the context of it here, so trust me. But, uh, but here it goes. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That describes us. At one time, that's what we were. He goes on, he says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And it goes on. And then, then it picks it back up in verse 8. He says, those who are trusted in God are careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. See, we started out, this is what we once were, but this is what we've become. This is what we used to be. This is who we are and what we are now. We were the people who initially said no. But when it came down to it, we trusted God and we did what was good. So that's what I mean when I say this is a fresh start for us. It's something that we get to start over. And can I tell you again, a fresh start is available anytime, anytime, every day. Man, just, just, you just sinned? Okay, 
go to the Savior. If he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you just go to him and you ask, God, forgive me and give me a fresh start. Middle of the day, end of the day, I don't care. Right? Uh, even though I said earlier, mercies are new every morning. Uh, listen, God's mercies are not just like a, a one and done. Right? You get a fresh set every day, and there's enough in the set to completely cover you for any eventuality. Trust me, trust me. We may feel that we've blown it because we've been rebellious toward God. We've maybe lost our way a bit. Even, in, even believers feel this from time to time. We may feel like, oh, I've really lost my purpose in life. I thought, you know, may, some people have felt a call to, to, by God to do a certain thing. Some felt called to a professional ministry but never fulfilled that, never went after it. You know, you feel like you've lost your purpose. But the truth is found in the parable when the first son changes his mind. And it really, that's what it boils down to. This, this change of mind, in essence, describes repentance. This is what repentance is. Repentance, uh, true repentance, starts with a change of mind. The most common New Testament word uh, translated repent or repentance is metanoeo, which is the verb form, or metanoia, which is the noun. And it simply means a change of mind. Change your mind. But, so, so that's great. I changed my mind. And, but, but then, here's the deal. Changing our minds for it to be true repentance cannot end only in our minds. Okay, it has to go a step further. So if there's really been a change of mind, do you understand our minds tell our feet where to go? If my mind is going to tell me right now, turn and go the other way, right? Okay, so, so when I repent, it's, it's the same kind of an idea. I'm going the wrong way in life. I'm doing the wrong thing. And then true repentance starts here with a change of mind. And it tells the body... Now, quit doing that. Quit being rebellious against God and turn back to Him and go work in the venue. Right? Getting it? So, so, so it starts in our minds, but to be real repentance, if it doesn't result in action, it's not really effectual. It's not, it's not true repentance. So, so again, when we truly repent and the actions follow, then that's when a fresh start is truly available to us. Now, that happens initially for all of us when we give our lives to Christ for salvation, right? We get that. Like, I leave behind the old way of life. Thank God my mom, she, she physically left behind her old life. But when we all knelt at the couch that day, we all started a brand new life in Jesus. And wow, what a life it's been. What a glorious life it's been. So amazing. And so, so but, it, but it happens fresh every single day, as I've said. So the point is, again, that our sin doesn't define us as a purpose. It's in the same way the Heavenly Father loves us deeply. As we said again last week, He sees incredible worth and value in each of us. Even so, each, you know, uh, we all understand that God cannot possibly be pleased with certain things we do or don't do. Does, does that make sense? So He's pleased with you. This is what we talked about last week. He sees value in you, but He's not always pleased with our, uh, what we do. Uh, one time I had my, uh, one of my sons, he... Uh, I could feel like there was some tension between us, and I didn't understand it. I didn't know. This was, he was an adult at the time, and this was years ago. And, and I, you know, I just was kind of like, I, just, I feel like I just need to go sit and talk with him and figure out what is going on between us. And so we, we sat down to lunch, and I, I just said, hey, I'm just going to open this, this can. You know, you felt like you're opening one of those cans with a fake snake in it. It's going to pop out and get me, but... Uh, anyway, so I, I, uh, I looked him straight in the eye. I said, okay, I just, I got to put my cards on the table here. I feel like there's some tension between us. I honestly don't know what it is. Can, can, can we talk about that? And he just, he just blurted out these words. He says, well, 
I guess the truth is, I just feel like you're disappointed in me. Okay? That's tough. That's tough. And I looked him back in the eye, and I didn't, I didn't even have to think about it. I honestly didn't even. It's like, and I just, it was just how I felt and just how God had, had made me think about him. And I said, son, son, I will never, ever be disappointed in you. Never. I said, there might be times I'm disappointed by things you do, but that's not you. We, we all go through that, right? That's fair. I mean, you can't be a parent without realizing sometimes you're disappointed in things your kids do. But really, at the heart of it, disappointment with them as a person? No. And, and that's what I told him. And I, I'll tell you what, that was like, you know, it just popped that balloon. It let all, it just, psh, that was it. That's all he needed to know. And, and that subject's never had to come up again because that day we put an end to the lie of the enemy that had told him that he was not valued, that I was disappointed in him. And, uh, and, you know, there were certainly some things I needed to change. It was part of the process was figuring out different ways I could say or do things that would be more helpful. So it's just part of the process. But, but that reality is what really helped us get going from there. Luke 6.49 says, But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed in its destruction was complete. The bottom line is, is when we hear from the Lord to do what he says, God can't be pleased with everything we do, but he, he is pleased with you as a person today in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? Worship team, come on back up. At the end of the day, are we the kind of people that are putting on a good show? Are we doing the church thing and we make promises to God about this or that, but when it really comes down to it, we have no intention of obeying God or working in his vineyard? Is that who we are? This is exactly, again, what the Pharisees of Jesus' time did. They made a great show of their religion, but that's really all it was about. It was a show. And Jesus will later quote Isaiah, and he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. No good. So but even if we have been behaving like Pharisees, God will still welcome us. He will into his vineyard. If we repent and we do the things that show that we've been saved by grace, the answer to Jesus' question about who did the will of the Father is the Son who repented and did what the Father asked of Him. So every day we have this opportunity to say yes to God, even if we said no at breakfast. Right? <laughs> Here's the thing. Fresh starts don't force themselves on us, okay? We have to choose. We do. We have to choose a fresh start. To God, the decision to start fresh far outweighs any failures of your past. Absolutely. Those failures don't have any power over your life right now in Jesus' name. And again, if my mother had not chosen her fresh start, I may never have come to Christ. I don't know. I'm not the kind of person that believes that, that there's a destiny and you can't ever change that. I think it really matters. Otherwise, why would we even have to preach the gospel if just those who are going to come to Jesus are going to come to him anyway? It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So I really think, and that's why we have to make sure we're doing all we can to tell people because we never know if we're just the only person in our lives that are actually going to make that difference for them. It's huge. I think, I think, I know, I know I could have missed God. I know I could have chosen that night not to give my life to Him. I know my mother could have chosen six weeks prior to not, not drive across the country like that. But if I hadn't come to Jesus, I would never have met Rhonda, my wife, and 
I wouldn't have the three great boys that I have, and, and I wouldn't have received a call to the ministry, and we wouldn't have started this church in 2000, and wouldn't have seen, you know, and, and again, the hundred, and literally there's been hundreds of people who have come to Christ over 20 years of ministry here, and, uh, you know, and you say, uh, would they have come to Christ anyway? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, if somebody's praying for them and, and somebody else had shared the gospel, maybe, but, but there's something going on that God has done because a, a woman decided to get a fresh start in life many years ago, even in the terrible place she was in. So thank God today for fresh starts. Thank God. Are you ready for yours today? Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.